The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Sex Lives, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm David Wallace-Wells and with me today are Maureen O'Connor, New York sex columnist. Hey Maureen. Hey David. Allison Davis of The Cut. Oh, hey. <laughs> and today we're also joined by Melissa Dahl of New York's social science site, The Science of Us, because we're going to be talking about a couple of science of us things. Welcome, Melissa. Hi, thank you. Today we're going to be talking about the new drug, now almost FDA approved, which everybody is calling the female Viagra, and what it means to call something female Viagra, since Viagra is a boner pill. We're also going to be talking about the all or nothing marriage, which is like when you put too many expectations on a relationship that it totally busts. And stay tuned at the end, we're going to have a, an update from an incredible, very meaningful and exciting to us story from earlier on in our in our season. On to our first topic, female Viagra. In early June, a drug called, Melissa, do you actually know how to pronounce this? <laughs> yeah, it's flibanserin, very sexy name. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> Flibanserin finally won <laughs> approval from an FDA advisory panel. It hasn't gotten final approval yet, I think, but you know, it got some initial boost. And this is a drug that had been rejected twice, but was recently the focus of an online petitioning campaign under the name slash URL eventhescore.com, which collected 40,000 signatures, which they were saying was a lot, but actually seems like not that many to me, since this is something that people have been talking about for like a decade. It's like a mythic thing now, the female Viagra. Melissa, I guess before we start getting into it in depth, can you tell us a little bit about the drug, what it does, and most interesting to me, how fair it is to describe something that's for women by comparing it to a boner pill? (laughs) Right. Yeah, it's not fair or accurate at all. I think it was probably born out of it's easier to put in a headline, (laughs) female Viagra, because Viagra, you know, works by sending more blood flow to the penis to, you know... Make it happen. Make it happen. Um, so, well, the answer in so what they think happens is that it kind of it increases um, the amount of what they refer to as the accelerators, the things that kind of turn you on, things like dopamine, and and it also kind of at the same time turns down um, serotonin, which kind of is the inhibitor. So it kind of is like ramping you up and also kind of easing off of the break, I guess, okay. is the metaphor. Which is very use. similar to lots of psychiatric medicines, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. It actually was initially investigated as a uh, antidepressant. It's not about like arousal, like physical arousal. It's about like, you know, a mental thing, which is so funny because when that panel approval came through, I saw all these tweets that were like, oh, you know, now there's proof that it's not just in women's heads. And it's like, well, literally it works on their heads. (laughs) (laughs) So it's it's not a sexual performance pill then. It's about arousal and desire. Yes. Yes, exactly. And does it work like you take it every day or do you take it just when you're about to make out with someone? What's the... It is a daily pill. And... I just have such complicated feelings about it. The reason why it was rejected twice in the past was because they were saying the benefits didn't outweigh the risks. And they're still kind of saying that. What are some of the, the risks? You know, yes. side effects or... So it's it's like fainting, low blood pressure, and then, and then you're kind of things like nausea and, you know, dizziness and stuff like you hear at the end of every kind of um, pharmaceutical drug thing. But, okay, so this is a pill you take every day and alcohol worsens the side effects. So (laughs) So you can never drink again. Right. And like alcohol, you would think would be something you would maybe do before 
a sexy time. How do you measure the value of that, though? That if there are all these women that are saying, I think it's worth it to me well, to have sure. that, then, you know, how are you allowed to say that you feeling dizzy isn't worth what you say is worth it in your sex life? That's that's totally How fair. has the general reception been? Are women like, thank God, finally, I have something to treat my sexual dysfunction? Or is it kind of like, what is this for? Or what I don't know if you know. I'm such a dork. I know what the scientists have to say. What is, what is <laughs> that counts. <laughs> so the people who study low sexual desire don't know that this is going to help that much, the women that, that they treat. And why is that? Well, they're saying that just low sexual desire has is just such a contextual thing. It like has so much to do with you know the stress that's going on in your life or like relationship stuff or just like feeling fat or whatever. It there's just so much other stuff going on and like it might help some people who maybe do have these uh, neurotransmitter issues, but they're saying it's probably not going to help everybody. But then there's the argument of like if it will help some people is is that that's great. So I just am so of two minds about it. Well, in the I know that um, you wrote some of the Everything Guide of the Libido that was yeah. in the New York Magazine sex issue. And I remember that cited that book by um, Emily Nagoski, yeah. The Come As You Are, that idea. Can you tell what us a, a little bit about that? <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. I know. And like the and like the cover is like this zipper that is totally supposed to look like a vagina <laughs> that I was like reading on the subway. It's like a big pink book. Anyway, so she has this idea that the way we understand sexual desire is like really kind of the way it works primarily in men so Mm -hmm. it just kind of comes to you spontaneously you know and then you just see someone hot and then you kind of feel turned on and i guess they're saying that is how it happens in men but in women uh, emily nagoski says that it's more like kind of like a sexy situation has to present itself you know like Mm -hmm. if you start you know making out or whatever then the desire follows it's like the action kind of has to happen first right i think that metaphor that there was a sex therapist that said it's the equivalent of when you don't know how hungry you are until you take a bite of food and then you say wait no i am hungry exactly yes like the if you build it you will come which like it feels it feels really creepy to put it this way you could take it to a really gross logical place right of like ladies like once you're there i promise you'll like it i know, it's disgusting, I right? know. but it like that the please. way they put it the way that guy put it also was that they were saying it's not about um what it is is initiating sex when you want to want it yes. and trusting that after you get moving with it or after, you know, you're with your partner doing whatever you're going to do, that the the desire will follow the arousal as opposed to the opposite direction, which yes. is how I think that's what you were saying with that idea of like a bolt of lightning making you get turned on. Yes, exactly. Well, it's interesting to me that there it seems like they're basically, we're talking about a couple of different levels of desire. On the one level, it's like if you're wanting to have sex. And then another level, it's like wanting to want to have sex and that this drug is almost more aimed towards that second level of like being in a position where you could conceivably be turned on rather than turning you on in any direct way. Well, I think that psychiatric metaphor when you're talking about like it's all in your head or whatnot that like, I mean, you will, for instance, hear about people that are like intense germaphobes and they can't have sex or whatever other things that have issues. They have all these inhibitions or, you know, somebody's like an agoraphobe and they have difficulty leaving the house. So they're treated on one hand chemically and then they also sort of work on various behavioral things that help them drop their inhibitions. I haven't seen any mention of you know, like talk therapy yeah. or anything in addition to the the drug. Like the drug is the cure-all. I, I, I think so. I, yeah. Because the funny thing is I also remember when I was looking at that that they point out that in sort of all sexual treatment um, 
you know, when people are working on medicines or, or anything, there's a huge placebo effect because anytime you're seeing a sex counselor regularly and thinking about sex, that helps trigger your sex drive. Although I feel like it could be like the anti-placebo where you're like, I'm seeing a sex therapist. Like, there's no way I'm like <laughs> functioning, is it? Yeah. Because it depends on how you repair your cognitive dissonance, right? <laughs> Do you go the sexy route or the, oh God, I've messed up. <laughs> but so how big a problem, Melissa, maybe you could talk about this a little bit. How big a problem is low libido for women? Like how common is it? How crippling? Is it for those people who have it? How long have we understood it as a problem? It's super common, I guess. It's super common in in young women, is what they're saying. Like like women in their thirties, which oh, that's surprising. It's surprising to me too. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think I think it's because of that life stressors piece of it. I mean, I'm in my thirties and I don't have kids, but many people do. Maybe you have kids and your job is stressing you out. So I mean, there's all these other things going on with it. It seems like it's a very common problem. It's interesting because like, you know, at least pop culture has told us for so long that like 30s and 40s are like a women's sexual peak. And right. like that's when, you know, the men are going to like yeah. fall behind, like gasping for air and the women are like raring <laughs> to go. Right. To go, yeah. Well, that I guess that is from a, a Kinsey study uh, that, oh. you know, the, the interviews with like 1950s housewives. And so they reported having more orgasms than any other um, group of women. But that was like 1950s housewives. Is that really just from one study that like yeah. meme? that has like yeah. been like so pervasive in our whole life. Yeah. That and Kim Cattrall. <laughs> <laughs> so when they say this, for instance, that like these large quantities of women in the 30s who are reporting having a low libido, my question is, is it that they're noticing a drop from the way it previously was and that's what they're trying to treat? Or they're saying I'm not matched to where I need to be for, I don't know, my partner or... Or where the culture tells them yeah. they should be. Yeah. I guess... All very stig- like stigmatizing. I, I guess if way. there is a way to measure it, and this is based on this one researcher I talked to a lot for the, the libido right. story, um, it's how much you're bothered by it. If you don't have any desire and you're not bothered by it, you're probably like asexual and that's a you know a whole mm. other thing. Or maybe you just have a low desire and you don't want to have sex more than twice a month or four times a month or whatever. So it could be anything. It could be somebody says, my sex drive used to be higher. Yeah. It dropped and it's bothering me. Yeah. That's what's so interesting to me. Do you define it as like the amount of times you feel horny? Do you find it define it as the amount of times you have a satisfying sexual experience or the amount of times you have sex? Like how do you quantify And then what's the normal in each of those? So it's it's like... It's freaking all over the place. Somebody can feel comfortable like just being turned on a couple times a month. Somebody else wants to be turned on a couple times an hour. And those are like... Both of those people have the right to be happy at those levels, you know? I suppose that in some strange way we, I mean, I guess it's probably connected to this sort of sexist trope of, you know, that the woman allows the man who is physically performing to have sex with her, right? It just didn't even occur to, you know, that what? What if a man had a low libido? Does that even happen? You know, that we assume that if he's popping a boner, it's going to work and it's fine. And, you know, the idea of whether uh, how he's desiring or stuff is sort of like a piece that we don't add into the equation. It's also interesting just to think that, like, maybe a lot of people who are taking Viagra and Cialis are not dealing with dick problems they're dealing with desire problems yeah Yeah. and they're just solving it in this way that for whatever reason our culture is like said is cool right like Mm. maybe what they need is an antidepressant instead of yeah yeah Yeah. viagra is less stigmatized than antidepressants for some people which i don't know like the people's emotions around medicine feel very strange like i don't know if women will feel totally comfortable down the line asking for this or asking their doctor for this i know do you guys feel there'd be a weird stigma around the woman who has to take I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's another reason why female Viagra has caught on. Because, yeah. yeah. I was like, <laughs> what is this? 
Yeah. <laughs> if it gets approved, they'll give it a sexy, cutesy yeah, name. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> right. Well, it's interesting to me. It seemed like part of the hoopla was like really about the gender rivalry of right. it. They were like, go women. Now we have something to match Viagra. I don't know. Have you guys felt like you've been working from a deficit that you haven't had a drug for over the last like? It's like not really. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not something I thought I would. I needed. I think I always assumed that if you have like. Um, Issues with desire, like talk therapy, was probably exactly. what, what would work. Mm-hmm. Um, or talking to your your person. Right. You know, I guess it's hard to see as anything but progress if women are saying, you know, going to their doctors and saying, I'd like some help fixing my sex life. You right. Know, that's better than it's ever been, even if some of those people aren't. I think it's amazing to me how this becomes so sort of radically politicized in a way that I feel like is maybe disproportionate. I mean, what it seems to me is that if there's a drug that has some measurable benefit and some people want it. It just seems really sort of strange to me to all of a sudden make it be, well, you know, these people are, their feelings are wrong or, you know, their desires for what they want their sex lives to be is wrong, that we sort of assume that there's got to be some kind of societal problem where she's caved under this, you know, oversex culture and she's kowtowing to a man. But I mean, why do we assume that? Why couldn't a woman just say my sex drive used to be higher and now it's not? I want it to be back. Yeah, I I totally hear that and I agree with that, but I also just feel like I want to point out that the um the even the score campaign, you know, and like right. kind of a lot of the like men have a drug. That was actually a marketing um yeah. Camp- yeah, I mean, well, I don't from- think it's not that I necessarily think it's that like that politicization is weird too, that as though I don't know that we both need to have a sex drug. Period. Yeah, it's I mean, it's odd. I don't know if politicization is the word I would use, but it's like a medicalization of something yeah. that maybe doesn't I don't I don't know if it needs to be I'm so of two minds about it. Like yeah. if if it's something people are struggling with and it might it might help then mm-hmm. that's great, but it's also maybe there are better ways to yeah. address it. But the, you know, I think in general who can complain? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, like we we're saying if it helps it helps. Yeah. Everyone gets laid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we've been talking about flibanserin also known as female Viagra. You can read a lot more about this on The Cut and also on Science of Us, where there are, I think, at least a couple relevant pieces. Now let's move on to our second topic, the all-or-nothing marriage, although maybe the all-or-nothing relationship is a is a better term for us anyway. <laughs> Melissa just wrote a great piece on the Science of Us off a recent paper suggesting that we've burdened relationships with way too many expectations for them to actually survive, meaning we ask so much of them that they're bound to disappoint us. Or maybe that's just my fear. I don't know. Melissa, want to tell us a little bit about the paper and what you found so interesting about it? Yeah. So this is this guy, um, Eli Finkel at Northwestern University, who um, he's kind of been working on this theory for years. And it's this idea that but we look to marriage specifically um, now kind of for all these like self-actualization things. Like we look to our partner to kind of help us with our self-esteem and personal growth and, and kind of just really get us on this really deep psychological level in a way that he's saying we didn't really do in the past. And what I really liked about the paper, too, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't like any kind of passing judgment on it. It was kind of just like, this is what expectations have become. How do we help relationships uh, meet those expectations? Because he's saying that when when you do find someone who can do all those things for you, who can help you grow and who really gets you, that's it's it's like bliss. It's wonderful. But the issue is that relationships that probably should be fine are are just not measuring up. So. What, a, what a ringing endorsement. Fine relationship. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, I mean, like, that, that should be good. That should be good. Yeah. You know, 
Yeah. And he sort of sketched out uh, like a historical picture of the way that this has been changing over time, which seemed really interesting. Yeah. So he kind of traced it through, I mean, it was like this like three paragraph summary of American marriage. Um, but he was kind of saying in, in at the start from like late 1700s to like mid 1800s, marriage was kind of more about just like harvesting the crops and like, you know, preparing for winter and surviving droughts and stuff. Economic survival, yeah. Yes, basically like economic needs. And then he was saying like from like 1850s to the 1960s, more people working outside the homes. It was more about love and, and like passion, romantic passion. And then... From the 60s to now, we've moved to this, like, the self-actualization model. It's funny because there's simultaneously that idea, like, we're asking for, like, more from our marriages than ever before, um, while also spending less time on them. Yes, that is so interesting to me. Yes. Okay, so stats. Let's see. So in 1975, um, childless couples said they spent... 35 hours a week together. And in 2003, that dropped to 26. Um, For couples with kids in 1975, 13 hours per week. 2003, nine hours per week. And then there's also drops in eating dinner together, like time just hanging out together. Um, So it's like, it's so interesting that at the same time, we're wanting more out of marriage. We're like spending less time. Nine Nine hours hours is so little. little. I know. Oh my God. I think I'm at the office more than nine (laughs) hours. I know. Yeah. That's a problem. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You're married to us, Allison. Oh God. (laughs) Wow. That is shockingly low though. Alone per week. Yeah. Yeah. But that's literally like just before bedtime and then that's it. Like every... And they're not counting sleeping hours, obviously. Cause that's no, <laughs> no. Yeah, that's so many. Yeah. No, se- they're all sleeping in separate beds. That's actually what's going on. <laughs> yeah, and New that trend. was in 2003. I wonder what it would be now. I feel like it must be no. worse now. But on the other hand, I mean, it makes sense to me, too, that when you when you change sort of the nature of partnership and that, of course, a woman is around her husband a lot in, like, 1920 or whatever because every minute that he's home, she's home, too, because she isn't working outside of the house. Also, there's so much less to do in the house. So if you're in the house together, you're probably hanging out. <laughs> what did they even like... do back then? Um, <laughs> but then, I mean, I guess it gets to the heart a little bit of what's the, even the point of a partnership today that, you know, I'm not going to need a husband to support me financially. I'm going to be able to do that by myself. I don't necessarily need him to, like, make it OK for me to live outside of my parents' home. I already do that. So what is the point of that other than perhaps some kind of partnership that's for the good of each of our own personal growth? Right. Mostly it's to stop dating. That's what I assume, right? <laughs> like, get off Tinder? Is that what you're married for? <laughs> you're the resident married, David. Do you find that like you spend only nine hours with your wife? I feel or... like the uh, my whole life is with her. I don't <laughs> think I ever, I don't think I spend nine hours alone all week. It's like, it's nice. but I definitely think when I was reading this, your summary of this piece, I was like, why would anyone not want to be like BFF with your husband or wife? Like, what are you in a relationship for? That's crazy. Like if you're advising someone to like lower their expectations that just seems insane to me i mean it's wonderful and like i feel like when my boyfriend told me you're my best friend that like meant more to me than when he said i love you for the first time it was so nice but i think the problem comes if like you are looking to this one person to fulfill your like deepest psychological needs you know it's like there is something strange about this idea that you're supposed to get 100 percent of your emotional satisfaction from one person yeah i was reading somewhere the way you sort of different like social psychologists and what 
not describe it. And what you have, David, is known as a total marriage uh-huh. in that <laughs> you share marriage. everything, all your emotional needs, your hobbies, your interests. You we can probably... even share a hairstyle, actually. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> the top knot. The top knot. true. <laughs> yeah, no, she's trying to turn me into her sexual double, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Like, We're learning a lot about your sex life today, episode. David. That's good. <laughs> yeah, the idea that every relationship is supposed to be like that or that they do, you're not supposed to have any secrets from your significant other and they're supposed to sort of take over everything, it makes sense that that becomes the way we sort of conceive a partnership because why else would you be with somebody unless they were the utmost wonderful everything because you don't have to tie yourself to anyone if you don't want to. But on the other hand, I think there is something sort of a dangerous expectation to assume that like I'm not allowed to have my own private life away from my significant other or that, you know, that that has to be the person that I confide everything in or even like I sometimes talk to friends who are saying like, oh, like I really like this person, but like he doesn't read the books I like to read. How could I ever be with somebody? And you're like, well, joint, you'll be in a book club for that. And, other, but other you won't have sex with the book club girls. You're going to have sex with your boyfriend. And it's weird to expect that whoever you like having sex with on a regular basis is also supposed to be the complete fulfiller of all emotional needs. Right. And the upshot of the study was that that's sort of a recipe for um, disappointment in those relationships. Yeah. Right? So I think you are like the fulfillment of this, oh. like the all <laughs> marriage, you know, and it's like when you don't, that's what I was trying to say, like a good relationship, yeah. you know, where you, you, you don't get everything out of this person, but it's a good relationship. If the expectation is that you need to get like every one of your needs met mm-hmm. by this person, then it's like, oh, well, what's what's wrong with what's wrong with us? And nothing mm-hmm. is maybe the answer. I feel like every marriage should include like, you know, your best friend, your mother, your therapist, and then like the person you sleep with so they can spread it around. Also, it's unfair to sometimes I think if you happen to have like a lot of emotional baggage, like to expect somebody else to carry the weight of that too. Totally. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really good point. That's but who else is going to carry it if not your therapist? Yeah, you hire a therapist. You get a journal. I don't know. Everybody gets a piece of your baggage. <laughs> you know, it's a full set you can share. <laughs> So I think the moral of the story is David has a perfect marriage and it's making everybody jealous and depressed. Basically, David has a unicorn marriage. Awesome. Lording it over everybody. (laughs) So we've been talking about uh, the all or nothing marriage, which you can read about on Science of Us. And before we go, we wanted to update you on a story that we talked about a bunch of episodes ago, which um, if you remember, if you've been listening, a man who had a penis transplant. Allison, do you want to tell us what's happened in this man, this very spectacular man's life? I do. The guy who got the world's first penis transplant, successful penis transplant, is going to be a father. He's having a baby successfully using that quickly. Yeah, I know. Because last time we talked to you, you just interviewed the doctor who was saying, oh, he had sex for the first time and it worked and he was so happy. It was sort of a surprise. Everybody was thrilled that sex even worked. Right. And that the guy was even... You know, not alienated by his own penis. And it's barely been two months and it's working so well that he has impregnated a woman. I just, it's like modern medicine blows my mind. I want to believe that it's like quadruplets also. <laughs> it's oh, like wow. somehow now he has super sperm. Um, we don't know yet, but I don't know. I'll keep you guys posted if it's a boy and or this, a girl. And I know this, this is your version of the royal baby, Allison. Yes, I think I we're be. on dick transplant guy baby watch <laughs> baby and we still watch. don't even know who he is i know still anonymous but we will find his baby and is this the girlfriend that when that when you'd interviewed the doctor that he was saying that oh like he and his girlfriend have to like carefully do it this way or that way yeah. she shouldn't be on top da, 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 da. Yeah, same girlfriend she's stuck by him and they're having a little family so congrats to uh the happy father the happy right. mother anonymous and dick transplant and the, guy. Yeah, the anonymous <laughs> dick donor i know and the miracle baby yeah it's a beautiful world That's it for Sex Lives. Our producer today is Sam Digman. 
Thanks also to Henry Malofsky, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers. For Allison Davis, Maureen O'Connor, and Melissa Dahl, I'm David Wallace-Wells. We'll talk to you next time, and thanks for listening.